Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. I find it amazing that a Conservative Unionist Party Prime Minister doesn't understand what it mm. means to be part of the Union. I mean, I would, I would have thought that being part of the Union was fairly clear-cut. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at The Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. Now, Boris Johnson might have left number 10, but he's never far away from British politics and the front line. The problems left over from his removal by MPs last year remain... The Tory grassroots are still, by and large, furious about it. And they are now starting to move against MPs they blame. More on that later. And Johnson's been busy in Parliament too, pushing for a more robust response from the UK in Ukraine's war against the Russian invaders. More on the future of that conflict, which started a year ago today, later too. But first, Brexit. Yep, Brexit and Boris Johnson's deal in Northern Ireland. Richie Sunak is in a bind about what to do next to resolve the impasse, where the DUP is unimpressed by his efforts. Now, the PM met with the DUP last Thursday in Belfast, and by all accounts, it didn't go well. With me now is Sammy Wilson, the DUP's Brexit spokesman. Thank you very much for the invite, Chris. Not at all. Now, whenever you're on the podcast, it means Brexit's a problem. So what happened last Thursday? Well... Out of the blue, and it it really was out of the blue, we were told the Prime Minister was coming to Northern Ireland for meetings with the parties on Friday. Late on Thursday evening, then the Prime Minister requested that he meet a delegation from the party. I wasn't able to go. I think it was about half 10 or 11 o'clock, actually, in the evening. And um, the four went, who happened to be close to the hotel and were available, went along with Geoffrey Donaldson and they met with the Prime Minister. And us, from all of the accounts I've been given, it wasn't the most pleasant of meetings. And it seemed that the Prime Minister had come with a, a package which he expected us to adhere to and then get back into Stormont, just like that. And, you know, there's been no pre-discussion about what was being talked about. And I can understand that, you know, when you're in the middle of negotiations, you don't want to divulge what's happening in negotiations until they're completed. Though the Prime Minister does know, and Downing Street would know, that on occasions when we have been given information in confidence and asked not to spread it, we have adhered to that. We have never, ever broken a confidence. And I would have thought that the 
right thing to have done would be at least at some stage during negotiations to give some indication of the direction of them, the content of them, to see if it was even coming close to what we required to get back into Stormont. Those seven tests the GEP have set guarantee the sixth article of the Act of Union 1800, avoid diversion of trade, no border in Irish Sea, giving Northern Ireland people a say in their laws, no checks on goods between GB and NI, um, and no regulatory barriers necessary by Stormont, and preserving the letter and spirit of Northern Ireland's position set out in the Good Friday Agreement. Of those seven, how many do you think were ticked by what Mrs Sunak offered you last Thursday? Well, I think that's probably the wrong approach to looking at those tests. Okay. Those tests set the background to how we will judge any deal. And many of them are interlinked anyway. I mean, for example, ensuring that the laws that are passed in Northern Ireland are passed with the assent of the people of Northern Ireland. That, of course, would ensure that you don't, because we're not going to vote for regulatory barriers, we're not going to vote for a border in Irish Sea, we're not going to adhere to any laws which cause trade to be restricted, etc. So I think rather than say which have been ticked, it's better to ask, has the central premise of all of those tests been addressed? And the answer is, quite clearly, in our eyes, from what we know Mm. of the deal so far, is that there hasn't, because Northern Ireland will still be under EU law. The very fact that going to, the, the, the Prime Minister has admitted there'll be some role for the European Court of Justice. Why would there be a role for the European Court of Justice if there was no EU law applying in Northern Ireland? That seems to me the absolute red line on the whole thing. If he can, if he can deal with the issue of ECJ jurisdiction over Northern Ireland, then he would then, I think, go a long way to getting you to agree. He would. I mean, we have made it quite clear that we are unionists. We believe that we should be fully part of the United Kingdom, not partially. And that that means that British law has to apply to this part of the United Kingdom, not Brussels law. And once you deal with that, then you deal with all of the other issues anyway about trade barriers. I was trying to explain it to somebody, and I don't want to sound offensive, but in the same way that we understand what the SNP mean by Scottish independence, there seems to be a problem in understanding what the DUP mean by the union. Do you know what I mean? It seems to be a, a, a sort of barrier to understanding that. I find it amazing that a Conservative Unionist Party Prime Minister doesn't understand what it mm. means to be part of the union. I mean, I would have thought that being part of the union was fairly clear-cut, that being part of the union means that you've got constitutional links and you've got economic links. And that, of course, is what the the Article 6 of the Act of Union made clear, that being part of the United Kingdom meant that trade could freely exchange across all of the United Kingdom so people would not only have the constitutional umbrella that you were part of a nation and you acted as part of that nation and the laws of that nation applied to you, but also you would have the benefits of the economic the, the economic benefits of that nation. Did you think Richie Sunak is actually a Brexiteer? Well, you know, he stuck his neck out at a time when it wasn't popular. He made, him, made it clear that he believed that we were better free of Europe. But I think like all politicians in the Conservative Party who have seen, they have balked at taking on the European Union when it has resisted Brexit. And I think that's a big problem, that until people get into their minds uh, and politicians in the government get it in their mindset that, look, we have left the European Union, 
our duty is no longer to the European Union, it's to the United Kingdom, then we're all going to, always going to have this quandary. I mean, I, I, let me give you one example of this, Chris. The number of British politicians I've heard talk about, oh, we've got to be careful, we don't upset and we don't intrude upon and we don't disturb and we don't destroy the European single market. <laughs> and to do that, they're prepared to destroy the UK single market. I just don't understand that mentality. And that's why I think that even people who, like the Chancellor or the, the, the Prime Minister, who claim to be a Brexiteer, still seems to have this belief that they've got some obligation to the EU and that that obligation actually supersedes their obligation to the United Kingdom. It just seems so reminiscent, doesn't it, of Theresa May. It's almost like a Theresa May 2.0 strategy to leave you guys in the dark when you're so important, because if you give the green light to it, most of the Brexiteers I speak to will fall in behind. I mean, they're they're really waiting on what you think. You're, You're the canary in the mine for them. If you're happy, then they're happy. And I think that they've also, at least they tell us, they've conveyed that to the Prime Minister as well. But they've said it publicly too. Mm. Um, they've said it, I've heard it said in the Chamber in the House of Commons. They have said it in radio interviews that I've heard. And they've said it to our face as well. We're not going to try to be more unionist than you are. So the Prime Minister could do away with any dissent within his own party by simply getting a deal which honours his commitment as a unionist to the union, which delivers on the promise which he made in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and which gets rid of the problem of the uh, executive not working in Northern Ireland and the dissent within his own part. It involves being political, and I'm not sure he's got really much of a political bone in his body. That's the concern from a lot of Tory MPs I, I speak to. Can I ask you, has Boris Johnson been in touch? Is he helping behind the scenes? Well, Boris Johnson has certainly helped, I think, last week by demanding and, and saying that he believes a protocol bill should be pushed through mm. the House of Lords to give the government that extra bit of leverage in negotiations. And yes, I understand that he has had conversations both with members of the ERG, which have been conveyed us and I think with Jeffrey Donaldson that he wants to help and I've got to be quite frank with you Chris I think he's got a duty to help because after all he was the person who got us into the situation we're in at present. Absolutely and what kind of support is that? What's he doing? Is he saying he'll do a speech or say something or support? Well he's, as I say he's already done something and he's written in your own paper indicating as we have been, you know it's not that we're following him he's actually following us. So he's trying to he's trying to help resolve an issue which of course dates back to his time as Prime Minister. It, it does yes and which he believes is work which now needs to be completed and I think that call for example for the protocol bill to be finalised and got through as a, a means of presenting the EU with well we've got an alternative here by the way we can act unilaterally and we've got parliament to uh, approve us acting unilaterally I think that that's been a very helpful intervention not that I think that the Prime Minister intends to take that advice at the moment. Sammy just going back to finally to the, the Boris Johnson point is he held how many meetings has he had with, with Geoffrey? I don't think he's had, had any meetings with him. I think that he has sent messages that he wants to give us support. But uh, they're, they're not uh, now, Chris, uh, and uh, again, I don't want to be made a liar of here. 
there may have been meetings, but I am not aware of, of any course. meetings, and, and certainly none have been conveyed to us. In your world, Sammy, if you were the Prime Minister, what would replace ECJ oversight between the EU and UK trading? Would it be some form of special committee or something else? No. I mean, first of all, I think that ECJ oversight is predicated on the fact that EU law still applies mm. in Northern Ireland. So if you deal with that issue and make it quite clear to the EU, look, Northern Ireland is not remaining partially in the single market. It will not be taking single market rules. It will be taking the rules which either the Northern Ireland Assembly applies because those issues are devolved or the UK government applies because those issues are retained yep. at Westminster. That's, that's the first thing. And that would, that would do away with any role for the ECJ. And when it comes to any trade disputes that might be as a result of Northern Ireland sending goods into the Irish Republic, well, the same mechanism is being used for trade disputes between the whole of the United Kingdom and the EU would be used. Do you worry, though, that the Tories might be your last chance to get a deal that may be even in a ballpark working for you? Because the EU could just wait. The waiting game is on their side because they can, they can see what may happen next year with an election. They can see Keir Starmer might, might come on board as prime minister. And they've got a better chance of doing some kind of closer alignment deal with him, which disregards your concerns in a sense that the Tories can't afford to. Well, a bad deal done by the Conservative Party or a bad deal done by the Labour Party is going to make no difference in Northern Ireland. Yep. The same effects. Obviously, we believe that, in theory, anyhow, the party which is mostly closely associated with Brexit should be able to deliver a better deal for mm. Northern Ireland than the Labour Party. But we haven't had any evidence of that. Don't forget, we're in the position we are because the Conservatives delivered a very bad deal for Northern Ireland and simply dispensed with us to try and get a, a deal through. And for three years now, I have not tried to rectify that. Nope. But, you know, Chris, at the end of the day, we have not had the Conservative Party dealing fairly with Northern Ireland. And as I say to you, a bad deal, regardless of who delivers it, still is a bad deal. There are reports that Rishi Sunak might be in town next week, trying to get some deal agreed next week. Have you heard that? Well, there's been rumours that uh, they're still going to push ahead and try and get this deal through as quickly as possible. But you know, he now knows that uh, within his own party, there are people who are not prepared to accept yeah. a deal which falls short of... And it's not, Chris, I just say this to you. This is not an unreasonable demand that we are making that before we go back into the Assembly in Northern Ireland, where we will be required to implement whatever deal is done with the EU, that there's an assurance given to us and there's a deal done which does not require us to implement laws and implement arrangements which we believe are designed for further separation from the United Kingdom and also further economic damage to Northern Ireland. It's not unreasonable for us to ask for that. And if the Prime Minister is not in a position next week to bring forward proposals to that effect, then he shouldn't really be pursuing it. He should be going back to the EU. And the first thing he should be doing, in my view, is strengthening his own hand by pushing the, the protocol bill through the House of Lords, having an alternative and a backup if the EU are not prepared to, to show the flexibility that is required. And also, of course, he's got the leverage of the Good Friday Agreement not working because uh, it can't work 
whilst the protocol is in place. As, as the late David Trimble said, you've got one of two alternatives. A Good Friday Agreement and the protocol can't live together. Either you rip up the Good Friday Agreement and keep the protocol intact, or you rip up the protocol and keep the Good Friday Agreement intact. Yeah, and and the latter is obviously preferable. Well, the latter, the latter is necessary. Yeah, quite necessary. So don't forget the structures of the Good Friday Agreement yeah. And its existence was what was the, 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 the give us the, the delicate political balance in Northern Ireland to en- enable two communities to work together. Just finally, Sammy Wilson, thank you for joining us this week. Well, what are the odds on a deal which you think is acceptable this year? I mean, do you see this going on for months and months and months? Well, that really depends upon the mindset of the, the government. I honestly do believe that if the government were to go in to negotiations with an alternative available and with a determination to push the EU to uh, remove a requirement which they don't require for any other country that trades with them, then there's a chance of success. If he goes in mealy-mouthed, cautious, afraid of disturbing the EU too much in case they started a trade war with us, then I don't see there's any chance next week or next month or this year. Well, Simon Wilson, the Brexit spokesman for the DUP, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Sammy Wilson there. Now, coming up after the break, the Tory grassroots are revolting. Yep, they're pretty cross and Tory MPs should be worried. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. And we're back. Now, Tory MPs have until mid-July to be reselected as candidates at the next election after the recent shake-up in constituency boundaries. And for some, it's not going well. With Damien Green, the former de facto Deputy Prime Minister for Theresa May's government, the latest not to be selected for a new seat. Some see this as revenge over Boris Johnson's defenestration. But is that right? With me now is David Campbell-Bannerman, the chairman of the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which campaigns for a bigger voice for Tory members in their party. David Campbell-Bannerman, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Thank you, Chopper. It's great to be here. Now, um, there's a big campaign called BBB, hashtag BBB, <laughs> Bring Back Boris. So you wear yeah. this campaign. Yes, I am. Yes. You're a big supporter of Boris Johnson. I am. Yeah. Was that campaign anything to do with the reason why former de facto Deputy Prime Minister Damien Green was rejected as a Tory candidate for Wheel of Kent at the weekend? 
Well, it was one of a number of factors. I understand the main factor was about democracy that the local, the new local association, because it was its reformed. Right. He was Ashford MP, um, and he's moving. He's trying to move into a, a nearby yeah, seat. Yeah, it's the new the new seat, Wild of Kent. It's to be called, and he's moving from Ashford. Yes, I mean it, it, it's the selection committee, to, technically, or selection council decided they wanted a fresh choice. They didn't want to be dictated to by central office. Mm. So it was a reaction to that. But one of the other criteria was there were people who felt that Damon Green particularly had been out to do down Boris. Mm. And that was a factor. It wasn't the main factor, but it was a factor. I think that that's disputed by, by Mr Green himself, but I know that, that's mm. been reported that way. Well, that, I can tell you we know people in who the are room. in the room. Yeah. And, so uh, do you think this eruption against Damon Green, a respected former cabinet minister, is evidence of discontent amongst the grassroots still about the yeah. way... Boris Johnson was treated about the way they've been cut out from the, from the appointment of Mr Sunak as Prime Minister. Yeah, um, I should say straight away, Chopper, that, uh, you know, I, I think Damon Green's a nice guy and I, I, there's nothing personal against him. I think he's done well on immigration and law and order. But, you know, we, I'm chairman of the Conservative Democratic Organisation, we believe members have the right to make the choice they obviously felt disgruntled about being uh, told what to do by central office and they made their own choices. But yes, it is it is coming out of discontent. There's a whole well of discontent in the party at the moment. You have a prime minister, Rishi Sunak, that was rejected. 40-60 was the vote against Liz Truss. And then two months later, he was kind of anointed or mm. appointed. Um, and members feel they never got a proper say on it. Well, they, they, um, they didn't. Uh, they didn't. I mean, technically, <laughs> they, they didn't. They didn't feel it. They didn't. They they didn't. And and that it was the kind of the arrogance of that decision. And it was always the case they wanted to bring down Boris, and they had the numbers, and they wanted to bring down Truss, and again they had the numbers. That's MPs. MPs. That is. Yeah. This is this is really a reaction to MPs. They're being held to account for you know plunging the party into crisis. Yeah. I mean, you know, the polls are minus twenty seven percent today. Uh, when Boris resigned in his resignation speech, you can see, well, the polls are only minus 2%. It was somewhere between 2 and 4%. But, you know, we've really gone down badly due to the chaos. And you can, you know, point fingers at Liz Truss. But Liz Truss would not have been there if they had kept Boris. And Rishi wouldn't be there if they had kept Boris. And it's all about Boris. It's all about bringing him back. Is that well, what the idea it, is? It, is this part of a, a move to try and find MPs who are acceptable to a Boris Johnson-led party? Well, it, CDO um, that I chair and Lord Cruddus as president, we're not about bringing back Boris, actually. We're about empowering the membership and about party democracy. And that's very genuine. I mean, I worked as patron of the campaign for conservative democracy for six years with John Strafford, who, who actually helped write the 98 constitution. Yes. We, we, the conservative party didn't exist legally before 1998. People don't realize that. So this has been a long campaign and CDO is the latest variant of it. But I would say, having said that, if the members want Boris to come back and there's a strong case for it, then we respect the view of the members. And that that's, should be at the heart of how the party's run. What do the members want? Yeah. It's their party. Yeah, it would be a nice, uh, refreshing change. <laughs> well, you see, what's happening with the membership, it, it's collapsed since 98. It was about half a million in 98 under Hague's um, wonderful constitution. And it collapsed about 150,000 
at the moment, we reckon. And um, uh, why has that happened? Well, what what do you get for your membership? And they're going to put up the fee, by the way, 60% to £39. I mean, you can't choose your candidate as an MP. You get a choice of three now, not 300 as they used to given to you by the... By central office. office. And I tell you the way it works. You've got a favoured candidate, often an ex-special advisor or current special advisor. And then you've got two uh, selected wingmen... A wing, weak, wing weak women who, won't get it. who, you know, tick boxes, to be honest, let's be honest, this is the ruthless way they operate. And a choice of three is unacceptable. If you can't choose a leader, as we've seen with Sunak, and you, you're not being listened to on policies, and we think the Spring Forum, which is about to take place in March, should be a policy conference. Ministers should be there to listen, not talk. Um, so that, you know, you can actually make membership far more attractive than it is. At well, the right right now, the Labour Party is open to policy ideas until yep. March the 17th. And that's yeah. a policy forum that we then looked at, read, at, yeah. read by an MP chaired group. And then yeah. one imagines that is fed into the manifesto. I mean, that's it, the idea. I mean, that's yeah, called democracy, maybe. It, it is called democracy. I mean, we're not arguing for, you know, people call us the Tory momentum. We're not. Tory momentum. We don't actually stand on the basis of policies like uh, the Labour momentum do. But what we we are about is empowering the members and the members think democratically that, you know, immigration control is not mm. being properly considered. Then that should feed through. Do you through. think Central Office doesn't like members? Are they annoying? No, I don't think. That, I, I've heard um, often secondhand, but mm. from quite senior people that, you know, the membership is a pain. Let's get rid of the membership. Actually, from very senior people saying this, and it's outrageous, you know, democracy. I do believe in democracy. We're doing this for democratic reasons. I was involved with Brexit, which again was actually about democracy and about people having a choice. The members aren't stupid. You know, many are professionals, teachers, you know, hard workers, taxi drivers, you know. They represent the working people of local areas around the country, and they should be allowed to choose their own candidates. They're taken for granted? Yes, they are. They're, they're shown contempt, in my view. They All they hear from central office is, give us money uh, or hand out some leaflets. Uh, that's all they're interested in. They don't want to know about their policy thoughts. They don't know what their opinion on candidates are. You, you'll be, you know, you've been given three, and this is the favoured candidate. Mm. And, you know, you've got organisations like Women to Win, you know, which is supposedly a, a, a sort of semi affiliated with the party who are doing their own thing and the Theresa May started out and Anne Jenkin and and to be honest you know we do want good candidates good female candidates but on what basis we don't have to fix the system no you want the best candidates I imagine at the party but so there's a reckoning do you think taking place here yeah I, I get the feel of a reckoning a re- um, of, well of MPs yeah, MPs being held to, to account. Johnson. Yeah, I mean, because the rest of it. MPs have caused this chaos by bringing down Boris. There were about 60 MPs yeah. who signed letters or resigned or said Boris should go. There's more than that, maybe 100, 150 that didn't want Boris. But the, look, the point is, you know, I'm not saying Boris was flawless. He certainly wasn't. But, you know, look at the disaster that has followed mm. getting rid of him. Surely they should have toughed it out, well, you know, got him to improve I think, performance. I mean, no, man, nowadays, you know, my view might be, is it right that a party can remove a democratically elected Prime Minister, I know you elect yeah. an MP yeah. who elect yeah. their own ministers and MPs, yeah. but in a sense, that's where we are, really. It, 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 it almost it, offends it, against that. It's... 
I mean, uh, he won an 80-seat majority. It was the biggest majority since 1987 under Thatcher against the, the run of Mill in many ways. And, and like the red wall seats are all down to Boris, in my view, because I saw his appeal in London. I helped him on the London campaign. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a bit like Heineken. He, you know, he extends to parts that other politicians don't reach. He is remarkable. And those are often Labour and Lib Dems. And I was speaking to Labour and Lib Dems exclusively. My whole team was when we're helping him in the mayoral elections so what's next then there's a reckoning do you think as many as 150 mps might might be removed by by members well what's your forecast we're we're not we we don't have a hit list or a target list we're not operating like that but we you know we support members and i think we've empowered members to take back control to say hang on this isn't good enough we're not getting a a good enough choice here Uh, we want to do it our way we want more choice so I, I think though that a lot of these MPs will be coming out for selection and they will be held to account. And if they brought down Boris and there's, you know, a lot of the membership still, 56 percent, arguably, are still very pro-Boris and they're very sore. So how many more? Or you think dozens might be told they can't stand again? I, I think there'll be some more deselections coming. Yes, potentially. Yes. Um as I say, I'm not advocating it, but what I'm advocating is the members have the right and the power to do this. And, you know, central office should back off and they should be allowed to make their decisions. I mean, at the end of the day, before 98, associations chose their MP. And, uh, you know, that's the way it worked. It wasn't central office doing it. And they've, they've got far too much so control. There's a way out of this mess, isn't there? Which is basically give more power back to the members who fund the party. Yes, that's right. I mean, Boris, when Boris came in as leader, membership shot up. And, uh, you know, CDO has been hard at work keeping thousands going to reform the reform party. And, and there's hard evidence in all the emails we get, you know, give us a second chance with CDO. Uh, I say, look, let's have a, a, a true party, not a new party, because reform, by the way, doesn't have any members. It's just one man. Mm. And they, they just have supporters. So, so it's not, to put not democratic. Tory party to adopt arguably right wing Tory party. Yeah. Uh, 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 but you know, the members of the Conservative Party, if that's what they wish, and we want to see ways of expressing that, then, um, you know, that can be done with CDO within the party. Well, David Campbell Bannerman, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank um, you. Real pleasure. Thanks. David Campbell Bannerman there. A year ago, Russia invaded Ukraine, and the conflict has not gone as Vladimir Putin wanted. I'm joined now by Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I started by asking him the only question that matters. How will this war end? Well, that is the big question. I mean, first, congratulations to Britain for pushing the envelope on what we should do in response to Ukraine. But I have to say it's been pretty timid. A year after the invasion, only now are we looking at serious hardware, main battle tanks being slid across the table to Ukraine. We just had this big Munich security conference, the biggest of its kind in Europe, where, of course, Ukraine dominated. But three big questions came up. Firstly, we require greater military assistance. What form is that going to take? Lots of talk about air power, you know, Mm. fast jets, Jets. which perhaps we'll, we'll discuss. Second point is Putin is clearly in this for the long haul. He is now a spoiler power, and he is determined to see this through. He's hoping to test the will of the West, that we will lose that political appetite, that willingness to support Ukraine. And finally, the bigger question, more concerning, 
is that this isn't just about Ukraine. Mm. This is about Russia redefining what whole of Europe looks like and an alliance that's growing between Russia okay, and so China. That, we'll come on to those parts later. What is a spoiler power? A spoiler power is one that no longer is willing to participate in the international rules-based order. Quite the opposite, is willing to take advantage of its wobbliness, its weakness, and so forth. I mean, really curious that from the, the Security Council, supposed to be that arbiter to keep the peace across the world, one P5 nation, permanent member, attacks a state. Another P5 nation, China, doesn't declare it you know, wrong in any form whatsoever. And the other three P5 members, Britain, France, the United States, can't agree on what collectively we should do to put that fire out. Now, that's a worrying state of affairs for the international community. Where does it go from here, though? You say there that uh, you think that Putin is willing to fight to the end. I mean, he's running out of stuff, isn't he? That's the point. I mean, the, he's being squeezed by sanctions. Yeah, he's don't, he's, don't, he's expending munitions yeah, on, the, on the battlefield. Absolutely right. But don't you know, be, 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 be deterred by this. His ability to retool industries, his ability to just recruit more people and throw them to the front line. You know, I believe it's a myth that somehow he's not able to have the support of his own people. Don't forget, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian economy collapsed. Who was the great saviour that moved the country forward? It was Putin. He's still seen as but a he, hero. What's the policy, do you think, in Whitehall? What is the MOD doing? Are they hoping there'll be an uprising of generals against Putin to overthrow him? Is that what's going well, on? I, you know, that's for the birds. That really is because is Putin it? has actually included everybody that there is. There is no person that's not touched in some way, not connected in this some way to what Putin is doing. But uh, the Russia's ability to endure hardship and that's been proved over centuries far greater than ours. Once we start losing losses on the battlefield and uh, it's yeah. on the front pages of, of papers like yourselves, then politicians sort of change their mind. So Russia is in there for the duration. They And that's through this year. There's talk of a peace conference at the end of the year yeah, after but, some dreadful fighting this year. And who's calling for that peace conference? It's China, which shows where China sits on this. China and, and, and Russia are increasingly greater, you know, more greatly aligned. And that's happened even more so since the invasion itself. China is saying, let's sit down and talk. That allows the bully to have taken three steps forward, one step back, and then retain ownership of a chunk of Ukraine. Where do you see the alliance weakening most? Do you think America is the weakness in this whole um, effort to support Vladimir Zelensky? Well, I think you need the American leadership. That's absolutely right. They're the biggest members. But on left and right now, there are voices off, aren't there? You're right. In the domestic piece, it's the Republican Party that's concerned about that. All the more reason why we need to you know, clear this up very, very quickly indeed, because as, was, as I said, Putin will, will drag this out. Frozen conflict suits him. I'm pleased that President Biden went to Ukraine, heard... By from, train from Poland. My goodness. I mean, how about that? Taking the risk. I understand that they did. The Americans did let Russia know to say, you know, this is happening. Don't you dare. Otherwise, you could trigger something much, much larger, which you won't be able to handle. But what we've got at the moment is perhaps a lack of a plan, a lack of clarity. You know, if I ask anybody, what does a mission success look like? Mm. It's not clear. Is it Crimea? For me, it is very, very clear. So Russia is liberation of Donbass, the east of Ukraine, liberation of the Crimea, a sovereign Ukraine. Anything less than that and the bully is seen to succeed. And is that shared by MOD, by Ben Wallace? Well, they won't say it. They give us this answer, which sort of distances themselves from any responsibility by saying, oh, it's for Ukraine to decide. No, the cost of living crisis in the UK is a consequence to what's going on in Ukraine. The reason why energy prices are up is because of Ukraine. It's in our interest as well to see this out and quickly. And I have to say, it's in our DNA, as we've shown a couple of times in the last century, to step forward when others perhaps don't. And I want to see more but of that from fair, my government. That, that is what the government's done. I mean, Boris Johnson 
Hamilton led the moves against the uh, invasion last year, didn't he? I mean, he has been, and Rishi Sunak, to his credit, has done the similar work. Yes, that's true. Although I have to say that on the def- you know, the, the, the domestic side, Boris Johnson cut back on the number of tanks and airplanes and ships and so forth. So it's important now that we focus less on the tactics, yeah. the military assistance that you're talking about, and what is the strategy? Let's get that port opened in Odessa. Let's get the actual yeah. grain heading out. Let's provide the top cover that's going to allow uh, Ukraine to punch through the, the Russian defences. And then they're seen to gain terrain, and that will keep the West supporting. OK, so on top cover, you mean fast jets? Top, exactly. That's what you mean? We immediately assume, because it's easy language, for us yeah. to say fast jets. It, it needs to be air power. Which air comes power, in drones, satellite support. Exactly. It comes uh, in many forms. When will that, will that happen? And if so, when? Well, it needs to happen. We need to put in Ukrainian cadets into our flight schools. Let's do that now. But it takes three years to get a pilot out there. But there are other forms of air power. The A-10 Thunderbolt, for example, the Super Tucano. There are longer range missiles, drones that you mentioned as well. This can provide the tanks the top cover they need. It's a bit like when you're playing Risk. It's giving you another dice to play with mm. to be able to give you more possibilities. And when of will that happen, do you think, as someone who's plugged totally into this process far more than most people? What my concern is, going back to the Munich Security Conference, that everybody's now aware is it of weeks or months away to buy a sandwich? Yes, the problem. It's not what, what happening is it? What do you away. think? Well, it's, at the moment, it's months away. How long did it take us to get tanks slid across the line? And we're having, having the same hesitant discussion about where's this the because problem? we're spooked by Putin's Right, record. where's the problem? Is it Jen Stoltenberg? Is it NATO end? Is it, is it UK, so US alliance? Is let, it Germany and France? Let, let's put NATO in perspective. It means well, but it's a consensus-driven organisation. And as long as you've got Turkey and Hungary saying no thank you, then that can't move forward. There's another organisation, slightly smaller, called the Joint Expeditionary Force, something we created. All the NATO countries, 10 of them in the east of Europe, I would like to see Poland and Ukraine join that, and that can provide this important alliance that Ukraine can then depend upon in the longer term. They're not going to be joining NATO anytime soon. And an example of that is the fact that Finland and Sweden are still waiting for their membership. Why? Because it's been delayed by Hungary and Turkey. That's coming soon, though, isn't it? But you wrote in The Telegraph this week about how this is the start of a new Cold War with Russia. Absolutely. What do you right. mean by that? It's not just a cold war with Russia. It's a cold war with Russia and China. And what do you mean by that? It's simply because, the, uh, as I was touching on, the P5 nations, the United Nations, can no longer act as the arbiters of global peace. They're exploiting how poor the actual international rules-based order, as we're calling, is, is working to their own advantage. Cold they war, want a weaker West. A cold war implies iron curtain. It implies that we kind of put up a wall around these countries. Well, it won't be the same as the last one, which was a build-up of military might either side of an iron curtain. It won't be operating that way. It'll be an economic war where there'll be rules that Russia and China abide by, (laughs) countries then having to choose who they operate to. Our world will splinter into two spheres of dangerously competing influence. And we are too timid in the West to be strong about what we believe in, what our purpose is, what we stand for. And that's allowed us, I'm afraid, Russia to then take advantage of that. Afghanistan is the biggest example, how we gave up there in actually supporting a democracy. Do you you draw a line between the chaotic ending of the US and Afghanistan and the invasion of Ukraine a year ago? There's an absolute direct line, completely. That that Putin saw weakness and then thought, right, I'm going to do something for my own interests now and invade Ukraine. He saw that, saw that we didn't have the strategic patience and courage to stick with it and realised that we're also ununified, take America out of there, and let's, you can see what Putin is banking and, but, but then on. He some... wants Trump to come back. He's mm. hoping that there'll be more populist governments around the world, that the West will not be united. And this is what's so sad, is that there is strategic strength in us working collectively together. The G10 nations, for example, 
That's half the world's GDP. We should be able to stand up to both Russia and China. But that has, hap- but that has happened no. to ourselves. You're painting quite a gloomy picture. It is happening. That Where's this happening? Well, the West is standing up to support Zelensky. Tell me there. which British companies can operate in China in the same way that Chinese companies can operate here. They're not allowed to. But they're prescribing um, oligarchs here, aren't they? And of course. This is on the Russian and side. As that, is that affecting the agenda of Putin? Nothing that we do is changing what Putin there's does. limits on oil and gas price uh, and, um, acquisitions from Russia. And this is where the, there's a symbiotic relationship between Russia and China. Russia's got a lot of oil and gas. China needs it. So they're working together. And China reciprocates with the complex weapon systems, particularly in the microchips, that Russia needs to continue this war. That's the concern I have. We need to you know, regain, rekindle that Cold War statecraft, be able to stand up to Putin. It all goes back to Ukraine. Put this fire out and we can actually start to rebuild what the West stands so for. as things stand, if nothing, if nothing further escalation happens in terms of air power, when does the war end? Is it years away, do you think? It's going to be, it'll drag into a frozen conflict, which will then allow Putin to stay because nobody will then get rid of him. And then what will happen is it'll all die down. And guess what? In a couple of years time, it'll flare up all over again. So it's years and years and years. Unless we do something about it. Unless we had the political courage to do something about it. Well, Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee in the House of Commons, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast with a sobering warning there. Thank you. Thank you. Tobias Elwood there. Now, if you found my discussion with Tobias Elwood interesting, you may enjoy another Telegraph podcast. It's called Ukraine, the latest, with all of the Telegraph's top reporters giving you daily updates on the conflict from here and on the ground in Ukraine. You can find it wherever you get this podcast, and I'll put a link for it in the show notes this episode. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. Thank you to my guests, Sammy Wilson, MP. Tobias Elwood MP and of course David Campbell Bannerman. Let me know what your thoughts are about what they had to say by emailing me chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or on Twitter we're at chopperspodcast. Thank you to my brilliant team of producers Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. but most importantly of all thank you to you for listening. For more insights into the turbulent political sphere why not sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes this episode. Don't forget my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out on Fridays at 7pm online and in Saturday's copy of The Daily Telegraph. And always do buy a copy of The Telegraph if you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time though, cheerio! ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.